0: The world depends on projects that deliver solid results under predictable circumstances. We need those projects. But let's also be honest. The projects that truly inspire us are those that are wildly ambitious, those that have the power to change people's lives, and the teams pull off in spite of serious obstacles. This has been a banner year for that sort of project. Take the new railway running beneath Sydney.
1: I can't wait for us to open it. I can't wait for people to start using it. It is going to be truly transformative for Sydney.
0: The world is changing fast. And every day, project professionals are turning ideas into reality, delivering value to their organizations and society as a whole. On Projectified, we'll help you stay on top of the trends and see what's ahead for the project economy and your career. This is Projectified. I'm Steve Hendershot. PMI recently released its 2020 list of Most Influential Projects, or MIP. It's a full-on extravaganza of more than 250 breakthrough efforts that touch every part of our world and every aspect of the human endeavor. There are, of course, projects directly related to conquering COVID-19, like Iceland's app-driven COVID tracking initiative. There's also the Sydney Metro, that new railway you just heard about. Their Shanghai Fashion Week's Cloud Catwalk, developed in partnership with Alibaba, as well as a giant new solar plant that could help Chile go carbon neutral. We're not going to cover all of them today, so I encourage you to pick up PM Network Magazine or visit MIP.PMI.org and get inspired. I'll also add that if you're scoring at home, we've snuck a few of the honorees into recent episodes of Projectified and listen up for more in the future. Each of the projects we're featuring today is a multi-year effort, so these teams didn't spin up in response to the pandemic. But think about that, about the agility needed to respond to the challenges of 2020 and stay on schedule with enormous, ambitious, complex projects. Our sponsor for this episode is PMTraining.com. From live virtual classes to online courses available on demand, PM Training equips students to earn PMI certifications, including the Project Management Professional, or PMP. And Projectified listeners are eligible for discounts of up to $400 per class, just into the link pmtraining.com slash podcast. We're going to start in Australia with the massive Sydney Metro project, which will cost more than $40 billion Australian dollars. Coming in at number 26 on the MIP list, it stands to transform transportation in the city. I spoke with Hugh Lawson, Project Director for Sydney Metro City and Southwest. His section runs through the city's Central Business District, also known as the CBD, and includes building extensive underwater railway tunnels that will soon accommodate autonomous trains. Tell me about the public transportation situation in Sydney.
1: What's it like now, and how will the new train system fit in? Sydney's got a brilliant public transport network. It's got heavy rail, it's got ferries, it's got a brilliant bus network, it's got light rail, it's got all sorts of things going on. There's a really well-developed, mature public transport network, but Sydney Metro is about kind of taking that to the next level what's the next step in terms of the capacity to really move people around the city and in and out of the cbd and how do we take that opportunity to also build places and improve precincts in some of the areas we can go and touch when i joined the team we were still building the northwest project which was if you like the first part of the overall program of works you know and that in itself a massive massive project opened in may 2019 so you know for Almost a year and a half now have been running, you know, this first fleet of driverless automated trains, 22 million trips so far, despite the impact of COVID.
0: Having that first line Metro Northwest already running gives you an opportunity to see how the tech works. How have your observations of the completed sections changed the way you're approaching the work now on Metro City and
1: Southwest? It's brilliant for us because we spent many years trying to explain what Metro Rail was going to be in terms of the product and how different it would be to, say, normal heavy rail. And actually having the northwest section up and running is fantastic because you can go and ride the train. You can walk through the stations. You can understand the outcomes we're trying to achieve. You can experience what a fully accessible network is really like with the ability to get from the street all the way through onto the train, fully accessible, really intuitive signage, all these sorts of things that we talked about. You can experience what a turn up and go service is like with high reliability, high frequency.
0: The future Metro City line includes the central business district. Your teams have been working there through COVID-19 and because of the pandemic and the way that it emptied out the city center, you actually were able to do some stuff downtown that otherwise would have happened either later or more slowly. Overall, how has COVID-19 affected the project?
1: In terms of impact on the overall project timeline, we still managed to keep going. We keep going. We're on program. Actually, all our sites are fully active. And there have been a few areas where we have been able to actually get ahead of the game and either work more efficiently or do more work. I think for the team and our contractors, the kind of initial period of COVID hitting and moving to a mixture of remote working and different restrictions in how we worked on site. Adapting to that was pretty tough, certainly for the first kind of couple of weeks, two, three, four weeks, as we made a really abrupt transition from one way of working to a completely different one. But once that's been done, you know, again, all credit to my team, our contractors, they've really adapted well in order to keep the project moving. And there's, yeah, some brilliant examples where the world has changed and you know covid's had such a huge impact it does create opportunities to look at some of the things we just had as long held assumptions and challenge them and see if there's a better way great example of of something the team have done working with our colleagues at sydney trains who run central station is just really look at the hours we work in the world before covid you would never suggest shutting down parts of the station during the morning peak But there isn't really a morning peak at the moment. Even now, I think we're down at only about a third of the normal number of passengers at Central Station every day. And building the metro platforms and all the work we're doing at Central is really in a lot of customer-facing areas. We've got nearly a kilometre of hoardings up around the station at the moment, and they move around dynamically day-to-day, week-to-week as we progress different bits of work, putting in cabling, equipment, digging holes, all sorts of things that are going on. One of the kind of good things about COVID is everyone's had to think again. Everyone's gone, stop, it's changed. Some of those assumptions we had before, we can break those now. They don't apply. They certainly don't apply at the moment. Maybe as passenger numbers kind of come back and we get into recovery, things will change again. What's your vision for how this transforms life in Sydney? I think certainly once City in Southwest opens in 2024, I don't think a lot of people really realise how much of a change it's going to make to how the CBD works. It is the first time that there'll be a real true high-capacity metro through the heart of the CBD. And if you've used metro systems in London and Tokyo and Seoul and around the world and New York and everywhere, like you'll know it just becomes part of the fabric. And I think within a few years, people will wonder how they ever lived without it, the speed and the convenience that it offers, the ability to move around parts of the city in a way that you can't imagine with what we've currently got. My hope is that it does enable people to make different travel choices, maybe less dependent on the car, maybe easier to make certain journeys that at the moment are pretty tricky by public transport. I think Metro has the power to make that transformation happen. And then when we look at the projects beyond City and Southwest to Metro West, and the work at Western Sydney Airport, again, they really are creating a totally different way to move around the city. I think it will take a few years to, to be able to look back and see it, but it will really transform the city. We've seen in the Northwest already, it's changed people's lives in terms of the way they think about the opportunities available to them, where they could work now, where they can go, people they can stay in contact with, journeys they can make that they wouldn't have thought were possible before without access to that kind of public transport. For me as a project person, I find it great that we've got a document called Future Transport 2056, which is, you know, transport strategic framework, which sits within a much bigger picture of how Sydney can develop and ties in with land use and other kind of planning strategies in a really coordinated way. And for me with my project, it's brilliant because I really understand what my project is delivering as part of that bigger city-shaping vision. And in Future Transport 2056, you can see these potential, you know, high-capacity public transport corridors. Now, they might be metro, they might be something else, but it starts to piece it together. And when you see it all laid out on the map, the projects, you know, already delivered in the Northwest, underway with City and Southwest, starting delivery with West and Western Sydney Airport, plus the potential future extensions, connections, or other lines, you really do start to see that, high-capacity metro network taking shape across a whole region, not just one line or a couple of lines coming together. And you start to understand that broader vision that will play out over perhaps the next 30 or 40 years even.
0: Now let's transition from the tunnels beneath Sydney all the way up to the stars, or one star in particular really, for another project on this year's MIP list. Coming in at number 17, the Solar Orbiter, a joint project between the European Space Agency and NASA in the United States. The Solar Orbiter's seven-year mission is to capture the first high-resolution images of poles of the sun. The orbiter launched in February and has already sent back its first images. Scientists hope the Solar Orbiter will unlock hidden secrets of the heliosphere— PMI's Harry Jenkinson spoke with Cesar Garcia, the Solar Orbiter Project Manager at ESA in the Netherlands, about the project for the Most Influential Projects video series, part of the treasure trove of content on MIP.pmi.org.
2: So the heliosphere is the bubble of charged particles in which everybody and everything is in our solar system. Now, the second big question that uh, Solar Orbiter will address is... What is making the magnetic fields and the variability of the sun? What is the root cause? The scientists think that the main elements of the magnetic field are flipping north to south every 11 years. However, nobody has been able to look at those magnetic fields from the poles of the sun. So solar orbiter over the years will be changing the orbital plane and we will be orbiting and being able to see what happens in the north pole and the south pole of the sun.
0: The hope is that these new views of the Sun will help scientists better predict solar storms that can disrupt critical infrastructure on Earth, such as power grids, and that can also threaten astronauts in space.
2: Of course we have to protect the Earth, and we have to protect our machines on the Earth, we have to protect our spacecraft on the Earth, but eventually we will also have to protect our astronauts when they go beyond the uh, low Earth orbit. And we are doing this very, very shortly. So knowing space weather, being able to detect at source these massive effects of, you know, mass being ejected from the sun, it could have up to, you know, 20 hours, 24 hours. So there is a warning time for the more massive events.
0: In July, NASA and ESA published the first images from the solar orbiter, which show a swirling mass of campfire-like flares. That's just the beginning
2: of what's to come over the next several years. Because of the resolution of the cameras looking into the details of the sun's surface, then the scientists could already find out some features that they had not seen before. And those are these campfires. Now, what, what will happen is that as we learn how to calibrate those uh, telescopes better and we take more images, they will be able to look into even more detailed features.
0: This year, PMI expanded its top 10 lists to 30, covering a massive range of sectors and geographic regions. Now we go to the number one project on the Canada list, the efforts to restore Parliament Hill in Ottawa, site of the country's historic and still active campus of governmental buildings. Let's walk through the project with Rob Wright, Assistant Deputy Minister with the Science and Parliamentary Infrastructure Branch within Public Services and Procurement Canada, a PMI Global Executive Council member. Given the scope of the project and how disruptive it was destined to be to government, how did you anticipate those logistical challenges and think through solutions?
3: When we put together this plan, we tried to put a lot of foresight in. And so we built a plan that responded to the building conditions, to the expansion needs, and the modernization. But probably one of the the secret ingredients is we realized that we didn't have it all figured out and actually trying to have it all figured out would lead to critical failure. So we had this long-term vision, but we paired that with a shorter-term focus on implementation, five-year chunks of work, which allowed us to be very focused on what those priorities were in the here and now. And then on a rolling basis, flexibility was built in. So that we could make adjustments over time. And that has, I think, been fundamental to the success to be able to make adjustments to meet the evolving needs of security, sustainability, universal accessibility, and a whole host of other elements. Building condition and the needs for expansion and modernization can awfully easily come into tension. And so the whole approach and sequencing of the projects, we engineered that so that the condition of the heritage buildings were kind of the primary driver, but the strategy was built around addressing those conditions so that we were able to get to buildings before they hit a critical risk of failure. And that drove the whole sequencing. But we drove that strategy in such a way that we also addressed the growth needs and the modernization needs so that we are able to marry the custodial responsibilities of our minister with the the functional requirements of parliament and their needs to support growing numbers of of parliamentarians
0: you mentioned these projects have happened in sequence so center block literally the centerpiece of parliament hill isn't going last because you've been saving it for the grand finale but because of how it fits into the overall project plan so how did you decide where to start and then what to fit in next?
3: Well, we thought big, we started small. And that has accrued a tremendous amount of benefits. Number one, it allowed us to, to get things going in a way that we did not need huge amounts of money. And we were able to start on facilities that were not core to parliamentary operations. If you think of it as a pyramid with center blockers an apex project. We really started with the bottom level and creating space to be able to empty out what at that time were facilities for parliamentary administration. So we did not have to displace parliamentarians. It was a displacement of parliamentary administration, which is challenging enough, but much easier. And then we were able to focus on creating space that met the needs of the parliamentary administration, build trust, relationships. Then we transformed those administrative buildings, heritage buildings that were in great need of being restored and then modernized to meet the needs of parliament. We were able to do that in a way that didn't disrupt parliament and then welcome parliamentarians into those facilities, which were now restored beautifully from a heritage perspective and provided a modern infrastructure for parliamentarians, additional committee rooms, as well as modern parliamentary offices. That built, I would say, a fair amount of confidence and momentum and a stronger relationship with parliament. So that APEX project kind of drove our strategy throughout, and we used what we called a one-stone, three-bird strategy. So every project, we tried to hit that trifecta of restoring heritage buildings that were at their critical risk of failure, of creating expanded operational facilities for Parliament and creating a modern platform for Canada's parliamentary democracy. And so that's really the same recipe that we're bringing to the Centre Block as it's now hitting its stride in full construction.
0: This is the sort of project where each new phase stands to benefit from the lessons of the previous one. How have you worked to identify and incorporate those lessons learned?
3: A couple of other key elements that are really lessons learned to the center block is really bringing the construction team and the design team right in on day one together so that the design is getting the benefits of constructability advice as well as the construction manager starting to think through supply chain issues and best way to order the construction so that we're able to do it in a cost-effective and as quick a means as possible. So seeing lots of benefits from that, and we've amplified that a bit by creating an integrated project office, ourselves as project managers, the the design team, the construction management team, but also the partners. So members from the Senate, the House of Commons, the Library of Parliament, and the Parliamentary Protective Service, all together in a one-team environment with the benefit of kind of creating a common vision and working through decisions together. We're seeing benefits of that and that is leading to greater engagement with parliamentarians, which is of tremendous benefit. It's helping on the decision-making perspective, creating, you know, kind of sense of ownership of the projects. And that, you know, at the end of the day means everything because they're First and foremost, buildings to support parliament and parliamentarians in carrying out their important roles.
0: The members of parliament are big stakeholders here, not only as decision makers for the Canadian government, but also because these buildings are literally their offices. What's been their reaction to how the project has progressed?
3: When you take parliamentarians around the construction site, it's really one of my favorite parts of the job. There's nothing more rewarding to take people around the construction site and for them to be able to lift up the hood and really see what's happening and have a, you know, kind of broad ranging discussion. But I will say whether parliamentarians think that they will be ever in there as an active parliamentarian or not, the level of commitment that they have to making sure that this building is done right and the care that you can see really in their eyes. It's pretty motivating. They really see it as a bit of a a cathedral of democracy. And, And I wouldn't say that they see it as their building. They see it as Canada's building. And that the importance of retaining what it was and what it represents, and yes, making it modern, but they really, I would say overwhelmingly, what they want to see is when they come back into it, whether it's as a visitor or as an active parliamentarian, they want to recognize the building that they left. And that's a challenge, a challenge I think we're up to, of keeping the best of our history and our traditions and being proud of those traditions, but also you know, having the confidence to lean forward and look forward and bring something new to that conversation in the future as well.
0: Innovation and leadership have been on extraordinary display over the last year, both in response to the pandemic and also because teams have found ways to ensure that a lot of cool stuff that was supposed to happen in 2020 did, in fact, happen despite all of the obstacles. So if you could use a little inspiration, pick-me-up that testifies to how teams can build and achieve amazing things, pick up PM Network or visit MIP.PMI.org. There's your proof, 259 examples strong of what project teams are capable of. Thanks again to our sponsor, pmtraining.com. From live virtual classes to online courses available on demand, PM Training equips students to earn PMI certifications, including the Project Management Professional, or PMP. And Projectified listeners are eligible for discounts of up to $400 per class. Just enter the link, pmtraining.com podcast. Thanks for listening to Projectified. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show. And leave a rating or review. We'd love your feedback. To hear more episodes of Projectified, visit Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud, or head to pmi.org slash podcast.